Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. Thank you for joining the show. I feel like I am like a game show host every time I'm doing that intro because I feel like I should be running down the aisle for The Price is Right and being like, yeah! I do appreciate you hanging out. And uh, this week's guest who will be hanging out with us is Tanner Merritt. He is the vocalist, pretty sure guitarist. That's how, how professional of me, right? But I know he sings for the band Oh Brother, who are fucking awesome. Just released a new record. More on that in a minute. Propertyzack.com. Check it out. They do a lot of stuff. Talk about the newest records that come out and give you appropriate opinions on them. They also talk about the latest tours that come out. They also keep you informed in who signs to what record label. So if you need to be in the know, which I think you do because you're listening to this show, you should check out that website and become informed. Propertyofzack.com. You will not regret it. I promise. And while you're at it, business stuff, let's go to the website, 100wordspodcast.com. I am posting fun stuff for you to check out on your daily internet routines. You pop there, you watch a video, you listen to a song, you become more educated. That's what I hope you will walk away from. And also, if you're feeling ever so generous, go to the iTunes store, pop in there, write a few sentences, press submit, done. It's like two and a half minutes out of your life. If that, if you're feeling a little bit nicer, you can drop some stars as well. Uh, I do really pay attention to those reviews. And the iTunes people have told me that the more reviews the show gets, the better it looks, the more reputable the show looks, and it just kind of helps out in general. So help me help you by giving some reviews. All right, two things to talk about, and then we'll talk about Tanner from Oh Brother. I just recently had the privilege of watching, I don't know if I'd call indie rock, whatever, indie rock band, The National, who most of you are probably somewhat at least topically familiar with. Uh, They performed here in Los Angeles, California at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which was, uh, the show was incredible. And I don't even call it a show because it was an event. It's one of those things that, I mean, it's sold out in a matter of hours, I think. You know, you're just sitting on a lawn on this, you know, beautiful summer night and there's palm trees in the background and you're at a cemetery. Just like the vibe in and of itself is just incredible. And then on top of that, you have this amazing band such as The National playing songs at you. A friend of mine was going to watch them three times all in a row, because what they did is they played a venue, then they played the Hollywood Forever Cemetery show, and then they played a venue the following night. And they asked me, like, oh, are you going to any of the other nights? And I said, uh, no, I'm not. And then I, I, I explained myself. I said, yeah, just because I've seen the National in a club environment, I don't need to duplicate or replicate that experience. I don't know. Maybe that's like an adult thing to do now, because I used to go to multiple nights of a tour if it came through. Uh, with the hope that the band would play different songs or there would be some unique twist to it Uh, or just the sheer quantity. Like, I need to see this band as much as possible. And that's become less important in my life. There's been times that I have just, you know, gone to one date and that's sufficient for me. I don't feel like I missed out because I didn't go to San Diego and also Santa Barbara and or any of the other dates that play in Southern California because we definitely have an abundance, an overabundance of entertainment when it comes to the live show variety. That's how I operate now where it's like I look at a show or I look at some sort of thing that I'm going to do and it needs to be something special or unique or they're setting it up to be something that will, you know, I guess be memorable in some sense of the term such as 
the national playing in a cemetery do you yourself do you do you just go to one show that's in the area do you try to catch multiple dates what is your show going criteria i mean i know when you're 18 or 19 years old you go to like seven shows a week you could go if you could go to seven shows a night you probably would um because i definitely was like that at one point but then i you know as you get older you're like well maybe i can kind of pick and choose because i can fill this time with other stuff so anyways whatever adult stuff second thing one of my friends recently recently got embroiled in uh some misquoting press drama stuff and it got me thinking because basically he was asked to contribute for a piece for a certain magazine. And I'll keep this unspecific just because I don't need to draw any attention to the actual issue at hand. But basically, he was requested to fill out and speak to a writer about this one particular topic. That writer then basically uh, you know, took that list and kind of, I wouldn't say turned it on its head, but basically misrepresented how he was going to present it. And it just got me thinking of the way that journalism works now, where you are so concerned with you know, click-throughs and making sure that you have unique page views and you got some traffic and you got some juice behind the story and, man, it's getting a lot of social networking buzz and... That's, I mean, that's what everyone craves. That's obviously what this show craves. I would love it if these download numbers got up to hundreds of thousands of people checking it out because I had some band member or artist on the show that, you know, broke down and cried and talked about his overdose or something. Like, you know, that would be great just for the sheer download portion of it. But uh, just that sort of, you know, point and click culture where it's like it needs to be drama filled and juicy in order for us to want to really consume it. Uh, and I just ultimately felt bad for my friend because he was in the middle of this thing and it just like totally bummed him out. I tried to offer him some advice and just tell him to ignore it. But there's only so much that you can do when, you know, a lot of other people on the Internet start to make fun of said person at the center of the story. Yeah, it just kind of sucks because it also makes me think of the troll Internet culture as well of people that just like to pile on whatever thing is starting to get passed around the internet without actually thinking about, oh, this is an actual person, or maybe I don't have the whole story. That's a whole different rant in and of itself. But anyways, give me feedback, show going, press stuff, internet trolls. The email is 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Anyways, Tanner from Oh Brother. I got this idea to interview him from a person who, yeah, wrote the show and was like, hey, you should interview him and the band. Had seen the band, I think, twice before, Always enjoyed what they did. Never was over the moon about it, but really enjoyed certain aspects of their live show. And then uh, hearing bits and pieces of this new record has got me really intrigued. And uh, the guys in the band have always seemed to be one that other bands wanted to surround themselves with. And so we'll talk about that in the interview. But I was just really intrigued. And at the end of the conversation, I definitely converted to a full O Brother fan if you will, and I will be purchasing their new record when it comes out, which is like any day now. So check that out. Anyways, here's my conversation with Tanner. I will talk to you after came across you guys with the the first ep that you did um i think it was like didn't animal style have an affiliation with it uh yes yeah not at first but uh when it came out on vinyl it was a split release through animal sounds and broken circles that's right that's right yeah so i think that's where i first tripped on you guys 
and I'll style. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> what is it? Animal sounds. Yeah, there you go. But so I tripped across you guys there. And then it was one of those things where, um, just talking about all of our mutual friends, you guys started to hit the touring circuit. And you struck me, and you guys have grown past this, but you've always struck me as like the band's band. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense of the term, but like... You're the band that every band wants to tour with because you're good dudes. You play music that they actually like as opposed to like, oh, okay, like we have to bring this band out because they're drawing like 500 kids a night or something like that. Did you get that feeling as you guys started to kind of get out there where it's just like, like this, this is flattering that these bands want to spend time with us? Yeah, uh, it's definitely been the case with us from the beginning. Most of the people that listen to our band are in bands. Therefore, it's hard to make a lucrative career out of it because every <laughs> band dude is broke. Right. Yeah, early on, bigger bands like Thrice that you know, would take us under their wing, and I guess just because they liked us, and that, that was awesome. Yeah. There are some times where it's like, if that tag doesn't get shed, it's not even a tag. Because realistically, I, I don't think even like you know kids that go to shows on a regular basis understand that, you know? Like... Yeah, the concept of like, oh, this band is going on tour with this band because they like them. You know, like the, a lot of the times they don't understand like why these tours happen, you know, <laughs> but right. Yeah, there comes a certain time where it's like if you become the perpetual band's band where it's like, OK, like this band continually plays in front of large audiences and no one gets them like that's when it becomes obviously a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, could very well be on that path. Right. But, you know, we'll... <laughs> well, no, I we'll think. See. I mean, you guys have started to reach, in my opinion, in watching, because I've seen you guys a few times, and the most recent time was that circuit tour you guys did, and that definitely seemed to translate more into people like, oh yeah, like, I get this, I get where they're coming from. Because you guys aren't, you guys aren't an immediate band, like, in the sense of, they may no. watch, yeah, they, you, they may, you may see you guys live once, but then they would have to really kind of take the record in and kind of, you know, sit with it. Even the records probably don't make sense for the first, I don't know, dozen listens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that a, uh, is that a, like, overall, is that a rewarding experience in the sense of, like, do you feel people, people that kind of get you really get you as opposed to just like, oh, yeah, like, oh, brother, they're kind of whatever, like, they're okay. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I think the people that like us, I mean, seem to, you know, be really on board and, you know, kind of receptive. I, I guess it, they have to be. So, I mean, that that is rewarding. It seems like, I, f I feel like we get like a more patient list, uh, at least the people that stick with us. So that's good. That's a good word. I like patient because that's, uh, anytime I see bands out there and like, you want to provoke a reaction because it's like the bands they like, get quote unquote forgotten about, you know, a year or two down the line to the ones that are just kind of in the middle. They're very vanilla. Like it's easy to forget that they released three records because they all either sounded the same or they've got nothing beyond whatever is happening at that very moment. So I can see where that's helping you guys from that perspective. Born and raised. Were you like always the Atlanta native or where, where'd you come up and what was your family structure like? Well, uh, I was born in Atlanta, lived in a small town outside of Atlanta for like the first five years of my life. And then my family moved to Alabama where I lived for like until I came back when I was like 17. So a good 12 years. What city in Alabama? A few small towns like uh, Birmingham area, mm, okay. like really small. Like for a while we lived in like a, a one traffic light town. Wow. 
And so what does your mother and father do for a living? And do you have like brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And um, my parents kind of moved around a lot. They uh, worked with like different like sort of like ministry organizations that had to do with like children. For a long time, they worked at a group home and took care of like delinquent children. Okay. While we lived there. Got it. Was that kind of the reason you guys moved around a lot was because they were always involved in different communities and kind of needed to, you know, move on from that perspective? Or was it just a matter of they just like to move? (laughs) That, like, they would go to different, like, homes or, like, most of the time they were living there and taking care of, you know, five or six children at a time. They've always, you know, liked helping people. I mean, that was just kind of, like, a natural thing. I don't even remember how or when they got into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, my family has always been um, pretty religiously grounded, mm-hmm. um, so I was definitely brought up. For lack of a better term, probably right. like Christianity? Definitely. I, I was brought up in churches and stuff like that, and they were always like aspects of ministry, mm, okay. I guess, usually having to do with kids. So. Were you heavily involved in like youth group and stuff like that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. When I was younger, definitely. So you spent most of your formative years, like you said, in you know, kind of small towns in Alabama and stuff like that. You know, I always find that so interesting, obviously, just because I never experienced that myself. I mean, I visited small towns like in Illinois and what have you, but never was raised in places like that. Was it a weird experience? Now that you're looking back on it, was it like, wow, that's that's was strange that I was living in such a small town? Like, you know, and I had no, uh, you know, you had nobody to uh, really rely on, maybe except your brother or whatever. Like, you know, what was do you look back on those times fondly? It, it was really weird, especially with the person that I've become, uh, it, which it probably had a lot to do with shaping who I've become. Like, I mean, I grew up in those situations, like, ex- you know, extremely religious, conservative. I mean, I had a thick Southern accent as a child. Like, it was just, <laughs> it, 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 like, it, my life now is completely different. Uh-huh. I mean, fairly liberal and, you know, it's just opposite of like what I grew up in. It's, it was definitely strange, but I mean, it had everything to do, I think, with who I am today. If, if I had grown up with like, you know, an extremely like liberal upbringing, Mm -hmm. I might have rebelled and done the exact opposite. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Did your brother follow along the same lines as you? Uh, Or is he? Yeah. Interesting. You guys both kind of, in a sense, rebelled. I guess. We're both pretty stubborn and uh, <laughs> uh, individuals. Uh, my my younger brother kind of does the same thing. He actually, uh, he works for Circa. He guitar techs for them now. Oh, so, that's cool. But he does, he does it for several other bands as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've always been close. And um, at a certain point, we just decided we didn't want to look like or sound like or act like anything that we had grown up around. Sure. Well, because there definitely is a very distinct, um, you know, Southern atmosphere. There's obviously the positive sides where it's like, you know, everybody's friendly and, you know, like you were talking about your parents being highly involved in the community and stuff like that. And then there's obviously the the negative connotations where it's like, oh, people in the South must be stupid. They're obviously, you know, very, uh, you know, backwoods and that type of stuff. Um, so wh- when did you, you yourself kind of start to recognize that that was not something you wanted to, you know, I guess be a part of, for lack of a better term? Um, probably, probably around the middle of high school, you know, everyone's sort of like coming of age kind of period. Mm-hmm. 
I guess puberty can change a lot, even your mindset. And, but yeah, I don't know what sparked it. What was the realization that decided I wanted to change my entire lifestyle? Uh, <laughs> right. To happen. Which is funny because like now I, I love the South. I don't think I would want to really live anywhere else. I mean, there is a friendliness here and I like how laid back the people are. But like at that point, I think I just wanted to get out. And sure other things when you were actually starting to go to high school in your formative years what, what town were you in then and like what size of the high school and you know was it was it pretty small or did it you know start to get a little larger uh pretty small um spent most of my high school uh in this place uh chelsea alabama and i think my entire class might have been maybe 400 something people oh wow maybe 500 people pretty small i went there from 10th through my senior year but uh i didn't finish my senior year. So after that, I moved back to Georgia and redid my senior year. Uh, <laughs> just uh, start over, you know? Yeah, I I stopped going to school in my first senior year. And uh, if you have so many unexcused absences, uh, they automatically fail you regardless <laughs> of your grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't, yeah. yeah, usually once you stop showing up, like just because I've had so much experience with high school because my wife is a high school English teacher, my mom's a high school English <laughs> teacher, you have to deliberately try to not graduate high school. One of the, way, yeah. one of the ways of not trying is not showing up. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting year. Even the days that I would go, uh -huh. uh, I knew where the theater teacher left her keys to the auditorium mm -hmm. and I would unlock the auditorium and go in and, you know, take a nap for the first few classes. So you would, you, <laughs> you, you would actually, you would be on the school grounds, but you would not be attending your classes. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, uh, so teachers would see you around school like, oh, there's Tanner. How come he hasn't been to my math class in like three weeks? <laughs> That was you. That's the way it worked. Because you didn't want to arise suspicion from your parents, even though they eventually would know. Well, usually I would take my younger brother and younger sister to school so my parents wouldn't be suspicious. Got it. Uh, Got it. You know, I would drop them off, maybe go to Waffle House, have a cup of coffee, show up to school an hour late, uh, unlock the auditorium, take a two-hour nap, and then hit school about third or fourth class oh okay you know yeah yeah but basically when it was Something like when it was convenient for you i i really didn't care right basically i knew what i wanted to do and at that point uh a grade ahead uh oh okay so most of my life i got put up a grade when i was in elementary school what was the fact that you were just like hey this this guy is clearly advanced he needs to be with older kids that was kind of it yeah i i think in the mm -hmm. third grade they sent me to some like counselor or something did some tests and they started putting me in like grade ahead classes and kind of went up from there all, all you did was you just wanted to graduate with the kids that you were going to graduate with yeah that wasn't the conscious decision <laughs> no. it was more that I just yeah didn't care because of the traveling nature of obviously what your parents were doing and stuff like that i don't know it, it strikes me that your upbringing was a, a little bit uh you know i guess bohemian in nature in the sense of uh obviously not like christian or religious background but just kind of a uh, you know your parents sound like they were easygoing were they or were they not yeah super easygoing super loving friendly people mm -hmm. they yeah they are they're amazing people they're, they're the kind of people that you know if any of my friends were like having a hard time or a hard family situation they were just like well come to our house and stay indefinitely yeah open up their doors yeah for anyone <laughs> right that's cool sometimes 
people have a certain conception of how like a strict Christian household is. Um, and sometimes <laughs> the love is sucked right out of that because the love is being put <laughs> everywhere else. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have called my upbringing like strict or anything. It was just very, very like uh, everything was based around Christianity. Sure, sure, sure. And so, yeah, as you, as you started to navigate through high school, like you, you mentioned that you obviously knew what you had already wanted to do. Um, what what was it that started to tickle your fancy from that perspective? Kind of always played music. Um, both of my parents played music. It was always around. My mom taught piano lessons on the side when I was like, five or six i started learning a little piano then getting to guitar when i was around 11 it's kind of all i've ever done and all i've ever wanted to do i I think that's why school kind of seemed like a joke after that because right i just had no no interest in it what instrument did your father play he played guitar okay so did you guys have the uh the 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 sing-alongs after dinner I just imagine like sitting in the living room being like, Hey guys, let's play a song. Yeah. Sometimes informally. I mean, it was always one of those things. They never pressured me to play music. I guess they didn't want it to seem like a chore. Sure. So it was most of the time, like when I really got into it, it was like me in my bedroom, like just trying to figure things out. And if I had a question Mm -hmm. like about something like, Hey dad, how do you play this part? And he would show me and then I'd run away again. Right. You're like, thanks. <laughs> I'm extracting. Yeah. I'm extracting information from you. Thank you, Father. Right. Yeah. What was just because you were so I don't know kind of culturally isolated? How did you even get intro to music in the first place? Besides, like obviously your parents' records and stuff like that. When did you start to discover music on your own? I wasn't really allowed to uh, listen to a lot oh. because you know. Of course, uh, you had to go to Christian book. Was, you had to go to Christian bookstores to buy your music, right? Right. Pretty much. Yeah. Except for I could listen to dad's music. So I could listen to like Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and the Almond Brothers, but I couldn't listen to anything that was current. Right, right. Grew up on a lot of blues rock just because of him. Okay. Because that was like the only music that was around that I could tolerate, I think. Right. I don't know. When I was like 14, I started, uh, I would sneak like cassette tapes and record songs off the radio. Oh, okay. So I could listen to Real Rebellious then. Right. Anybody that hasn't been brought up in a uh, religious household in the sense of like you get certain things, you know, kind of restricted from you just because that obviously isn't uh, kosher from a, uh, you know, religious perspective. A lot of people don't understand that concept where it's just like, oh, yeah, whatever, all this stuff is easily accessible to me. But, you know, when you have to like jump through additional hoops like what you're doing, like that's, uh, you know, that's that's risky. Even recording something off the radio like that sounds so pedestrian but that's risky at the time i mean this was the height of you know like marilyn manson chakra and so that was all that all that parents saw on fox news about the rock music like world right you know right yeah my my son is gonna get swallowed by satan and there we are yeah i would uh sneak and record like like nirvana and smashing pumpkin songs when i could Mm. you know yeah and that's what i would listen to over and over that's did did you ever have an embarrassing uh, I got caught moment of music where you're you know you had to get your uh, dub tapes destroyed or anything like that? <laughs> Definitely, it was I was probably around like fifteen or sixteen the first time like people introducing me in school to I guess like the whole like pop punk punk genre mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, I went to a Walmart and somehow I was able to buy 
even though you were supposed to be 18, I was able to buy NoFX The Decline. Oh, that's huge. Uh, yeah, and that was my first record that I had myself, I think, that was like, I guess, current secular music. Uh, I mean, other people had given me stuff, but yeah, and I would hide it in my bedroom, under my bed, I think. My mother was in there for something and found it and read the lyrics and cried. Oh, no. So, oh, that's, yeah. that's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. And so they broke it and threw it away. The album's pretty lyrically fucked, though. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, I'm like, oh, I can understand why she'd cry. Maybe. Right, right. Well, I, but, I, I, I just always laugh because I, I have such distinct memories of me being like 11 and 12 years old. And this is like right when you know, Dr. Dre's The Chronic came out and like Snoop Dogg came out. And of course, like, you know, here I am like a hard white boy from the suburbs thinking I'm like the the most badass dude ever by listening to The Chronic. And like, you know, those, I mean, talk about fucked up lyrics, like, holy shit. Like, but you know, my mom didn't know any different, but if she like actually took two seconds to like (laughs) read that, of course she'd be heartbroken. She's right. So I, yeah. And I think, I think there's something like when you become a parent, like maybe with them at least, th- there's no longer any differentiation between like music and lyrical content. Because even though I was listening to it, not really paying attention like uh, to the lyrics, like like current, you have like all these like I mean, 13 year old kids that'll like you know recite like filthy rap songs and stuff like that. But yeah. it, it's not really sinking in most of the time. It's just music, right? And like, you know, my dad would listen to Hendrix and which is clearly drug rock. <laughs> yeah. But because he was into it before he had children, I think, is why it was acceptable. There's obviously an innocence about it where it's like you feel like it's so uh yeah, it's just like so uh benign. Like, oh yeah, this why is right. why is this, you know, affecting where it's like, yeah, fast forward forty years from now and like obviously like, you know, NWA and gangster rap and stuff like that, that's that's like the oldies that people will refer to. And it's like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, like fucking nigger. I shot him. Like that won't even be a thing. It's like, what? That's crazy. But yeah, it's all the context. One other thing I wanted to bring up Christian versus secular music. The thing that always blew my mind was when, um, you know, like obviously like tooth and nail and that, uh, you know, solid state, like that label became such a powerful juggernaut in the mid to late nineties. And like, you know, you go to a Christian bookstore and I just always, it blew my mind. Like CDs are like 25 bucks. What are you doing? Oh yeah. I honestly felt dirty buying music from there because I'm like, you're charging like almost twice as much as what you would buy at like a tower or a warehouse or something. Outrageous. Totally. I just remember being like, you know, 15 or 16 years old and it dawning on me where it's like, they are literally taking advantage of us. Like, what are they doing? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But when that's the only place you're allowed to get your music, you know, they can make a killing off of it. Yeah, you can charge a premium for it. Yeah. And so so as you started to, you know, like obviously music became a part of your life and you knew you wanted to do that. When you kind of started to turn away from a lot of the stuff that you had been raised with, I presume that caused a lot of friction in the household. And like, how did you how did you transition into that? And then obviously, how did your parents react to religion becoming, I guess, a less maybe a less important part of your life at that time? And then obviously dropping out of high school and all that type of stuff. My parents are pretty understanding. So I wouldn't say it caused that much friction. And it was something that we just generally never talked about. Okay. Even though, like, there was kind of, like, this silent understanding, maybe, of pig-headed teenager that I was, I, I, like, out of respect for them, am not going to challenge their beliefs. 
believe that they have, you know, just as much of a right uh, to theirs as I have to mine. So I wouldn't say it caused that much friction. My first senior year situation, uh, when I eventually came to my parents, and there was a, a family crisis going on, and I think that problem took precedent over um, what was going on in my life. So my parents just kind of like understood it maybe as me like coping, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, that year, my grandfather, my mom's father, uh, within that school year was diagnosed with brain cancer and passed away from brain cancer. Very short period of time. Right. It spread very quickly. There was a lot of things going going on then because my grandparents still lived in Georgia. So my family was going back and forth like on the weekends and just a lot of turmoil amidst family. So I think there was an understanding mm-hmm. with that. And then I repeated, you know, when we moved back to Georgia after he passed away, I, you know, finished high school and graduated and all that stuff just to make everyone happy. Right, right. <laughs> just to just to do your uh, civic duty as a responsible son. Right. Yeah. Did you play in a band in high school or anything like that? When did uh, when did like the idea of like I want to form a band become part of your life? My senior year, the the final senior year, I didn't really know many people for the first part of it. Uh, right. I was just finishing trying to get this school thing finished in a new place. But I met a bunch of people, like I guess sort of closer to the last half of my senior year, who after school started, we we formed a band. Explosions in the Sky kind of rip-off band. Uh, maybe a little more mathy. Pretty mature for a senior in high school to have, because I'm trying to get a sense of who you were in high school as far as like, you know, were you like, you know, were you a punk kid? Were you a hardcore kid? Or did you, you know, kind of fit in with anything? From that perspective, I didn't know. I still don't know. <laughs> I could. I think yeah. that could reflect Oh Brothers music. I can understand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of all over the place. By that point, I had become, you know, a Radiohead fanatic. Then I got into a lot of bands. Like okay. At that period of time, it was always kind of changing. Like at one point, I thought I liked like lo-fi indie folk rock, like Neutral Milk Hotel and Bright Eyes and stuff like that. And I would try to do that. That was. Before high school ended, I was trying to do that by myself, sure. like in my bedroom or making little recordings and whatnot. And then I got into like Mogwai and Explosions in the Sky and Godspeed, You Black Emperor, I think, towards the end of my senior year. And then that was all I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, just changed my mind a lot. And you were just trying to, you were trying to find what felt the most comfortable for, I guess, a longer period of time. Yeah. I still believe that that's a, that's a pretty mature decision to try to be in a band like in your senior year of high school that has those sort of sonic ambitions. I look at myself, I'm like, I wasn't, I, I might want to accomplish those things now that I'm 32 years old, but like when I'm 18, I can't, you know, I can't wrap my head around that. I'm just, you know, creating crappy, you know, hardcore or whatever. Right. So that's, it was, it was funny because I mean, you know, every weekend uh, in our town, it, there was like a hardcore show at the VFW. And uh, we would try to hop on, but it was all like hardcore and pop punk bands. Uh, <laughs> and so I <laughs> yeah. overall, I mean, kids would go from, you know, beating each other up while watching bands to, you know, we're playing and then everyone would walk outside. But uh, there was this like local coffee shop that I made friends with the owner and I started like booking shows there and trying to bring in bands, like regional bands that I liked. And it mm-hmm. actually, you know, started growing and we would play there 
And uh, I think people like, you know, the more chill environment for that. Oh, so you started to be able to put different sort of shows on and obviously expose people that just kind of went to that club just because that was the thing to do in town. Yeah, right. That's cool. So I, I went to, yeah, the owner of that coffee shop, and I was like, hey, can I book shows here? And I had no idea what I was doing. And at that point, it was just like looking on MySpace mm -hmm. or Pure Volume to find any bands in like Georgia or South Carolina or Tennessee uh, I thought sounded cool that would be willing to drive and play a show at noon. And, and then I would always put my band on the bill. Yeah. Well, that, that's like the perfect strategy. You're like, Hey, I'll book the shows and Hey, I have a band too. Right. <laughs> what was the band's name that you were creating mm -hmm. stuff under at that time? Uh, Willow. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's, that's, that's not bad at all. I just always, I'm always intrigued by people's first bands just because I feel like that tet, like that just tells so much about a person's musical experience. So, but you, you're, you're lucky. That's not a bad band name. Uh. I mean, I've heard, I've heard worse. There's definitely, definitely worse stories yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but so yeah, and Willow, Willow is definitely appropriate for the music, the, the sonics you were trying to create with that. Right, right. Um, and so, and then all, all during this time, I mean, I presume you had no ambitions to obviously further your education. Were you basically just like, okay, I want to try to get together a band and play some shows and just kind of, you know, see where that takes me? Definitely. Yeah, I had no... <laughs> absolutely no schooling ambition i mean it took it took everything i had just to you know suck it up and finish it in high school so, right uh, i mean from the way that you're describing your musical upbringing i presume you didn't have these ideas of like i am looking forward to becoming a rock star or did or, or was that kind of like oh no I'm, i want to be in a really really successful band or like how did your how did your vision match up with that well i know never really had much of a long-term vision or a business plan, right. <laughs> you know, which I think sure, sure. the case with most irresponsible young men, but my dream then, and still, I mean, is to, to just make a moderate living doing something I really enjoy to do. That's your sustainable goal where it's like, okay, I, I do like that you use the word moderate. Cause I think it's like people, people definitely set up certain levels of success. Like I can speak for myself when it's like after Taken broke up, we broke up in like 2004. I started another band that played from like 2006 till about, I don't know, 2010 ish or so. We were called Makoto. We put out like, uh, two, we put out an EP in a full length, but the way that I went in mentally to that band was definitely way more kind of, for lack of a better term, business minded in the fact, because it's like, you know, Taken was exactly how you're describing it, where it's like, oh, whatever, it's a band, like, right. you know, I, I want it, I want to do this, but I don't have any, like, this is what, this is what I'll be doing when I'm, like, 40. There was definitely more of the conscious business thought put into, you know, the second band, and so, and I think, honestly, because of that, certain aspects of, like, my enjoyment of that definitely suffered, because I didn't feel like it was as, uh, I don't know, like, capturing a lot of that sort of youthful energy in a bottle that, you know, just happens because, you know, you, you don't have those ambitions, you know? But I think it's, like, it's all what your expectations are going into it. Right. I feel like uh, with O Brother, like, recent, like, in the past couple of years, I think we, we're getting to the point where we can split that. Because, like you said, like, when, when O Brother started doing stuff, we kind of, uh, you know, eventually have to adapt more of a business mindset. And, um, of course, yeah, we, we began to do that. And, um, a lot, I mean, the majority of it is, uh, drummer Michael. He's just, he is the business guy. He's incredible at it. Whereas 
I would be a complete failure if I had to do our taxes or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Don't put something practical in front of me. Yeah. Just, just go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Just you take care of that. That's fine. <laughs> but that, but I mean, that's good because you always have your one or two people in the band that are sort of that that creative business drive because you know that that takes just as much creative energy as it does to write a song because you just need to make sure that you know shit's taken care of definitely definitely and he's like one of the most highly motivated people i've ever met which my my motivation comes entirely in spurts and you can't really do that when something like business aspects are relying on you no Totally. Yo, dude, yeah. I'll get to this bill in like six months. That's all. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like answering emails this week. Perfect. Well, that, but I think that that reflects, um, yeah, that, that reflects you as a person. And I think that would be, you know, if you were trying to do that for yourself, like you would, you would hate it and you wouldn't enjoy playing in a band because you had all this crap hanging around you. I still think in the long run, it would be worth it, it for a time. I mean, if it mm-hmm. makes sense. I think it's just such a huge part of me that I would kind of do anything to try to make it work. But the, sure, I feel like sure. the situation that we have right now is working out really well. Well, and it sounds like you're like you were saying the expectations that you guys have are, I guess, in check and aligned with um, you know because a, a lot of the times I feel it's like once a band starts to get any sort of attention or hype or whatever you want to call it, it's like sometimes it's really easy to kind of put the cart in front of the horse and be like, dude, we should be. Like we should be big, whatever that means. Yeah. And then, and then means. right. And then sometimes it's like your hopes and dreams come crashing down yeah. and then you're left with just like this, you know, this completely hollow shell of a band. And like, it just, it doesn't, you know, that's obviously not sustainable, but like, it sounds like you guys have already kind of, you know, sussed that out and figured out the level that you're comfortable at. Right. Well, and with any situation, I think you have to come to uh, an acceptance of the fact that, uh, it, it's kind of like a sliding scale. No matter what like level of success you reach, you're never going to view yourself as there, really. At least with like a current rock band, it's hard to think of any new bands that I would think that they just like, oh yeah, we're here, we're here, we've arrived. You know, right, 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 sure. For a long time, at least, the more you get, the more you kind, of, the farther you want to see yourself go. Which I think that sort of like is what drives a lot of people, especially me. I think right. it's uh, maybe where I get ambition. If if I am ambitious, I don't know. I understand where you're coming from, and I think it's interesting too, just because as we were mentioning earlier, variety of tour partners that you guys have had. You know, everybody from you know Thrice to Circa uh, to Alice in Chains. And you know, playing Lollapalooza because you guys have played to such diverse audiences. Have you personally noticed yourself which ones that either a you feel comfortable in, or b seem to react the best to what you guys are doing? Been able to pick up on that at all? The Thrice and Circuit tours, I think, were probably the best for us as far as like fan growth. I feel like both of those bands have like a really open-minded audience, and th- th- those people are still malleable in a sense. Whereas like with Alice in Chains, I mean, a band that started in 1987, I think the year I was born, like a lot right. of, a lot <laughs> of those people are just there to see Alice in Chains. They've been their favorite band for like 20 years, you know? And, uh, uh, whereas like, I mean, we'll see some response, like, I feel like those type chores are, uh, gain more from the press coverage, I think. 
sure. than the actual shows. Like people seeing your name associated with Alice in Chains, I guess, just looks good. It's definitely more comfortable touring with bands like Twice and Circa. Like you're more likely to hang out with with kids after it because it's not completely weird. It's not like it's not some like really drunk dad with like three kids like awkward conversation at Alice in Chains. <laughs> the context in which they're br- being brought into a, you know, that's a concert as opposed to a show. And like, that's a whole right. different ball of wax. Definitely. So I could, yeah. And it's funny because then obviously once you break that barrier of like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm Tanner from Oh Brother. And they're just like, what? You're not supposed to talk to me. Right. Like that's, that's a whole different, you know, they don't know how to react to that. Yeah. So it's a little strange. Those shows were, were by far the biggest league tour style shows that we've ever done and we definitely felt like chumps we we load in all of our gear is falling apart like ragtag and you know we don't have a crew or anyone really it's just a five of us uh we do everything ourselves and they have like i i would notice someone different from their crew every day like oh yeah there are people like that I was I haven't seen you before and you've been here the whole time like yeah it's just a different world and they have like a wall of dummy cabs behind our like you know shitty backline gear just a completely different world that we had never been in so sure it's not necessarily bad it's different and in turn being so different makes you feel you know like you said like (laughs) I like the word chumps where it's just like oh yeah what what are what are we doing here? Yeah, it was intimidating. But, the, sure. I mean, the, the the band themselves, like the dudes in Alice in Chains made us feel like really, they were super accommodating. They were really nice to us. And, uh, you know, I mean, That's they good. didn't care, even though we felt like we looked like stupid. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. I used to work at Century Media Records doing like A&R and stuff like that. And like hearing what you guys do, like, you know, you, you're kind of, you're kind of like a metal band. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like metal in the sense of like, you know, Baroness, Isis, like that type of stuff. There's a lot of elements to what you guys do that are akin to that. Right. Um, did, did labels ever like that? Like, you know, from either Century Media or Relapse or that type of stuff. Was that ever a part of your world in the sense of you're like oh maybe we should talk to them to kind of release records before triple crown was even a thing or or did it was that never even an option for you guys no we never talked to anyone like that um i i think we like uh being a heavy band is something that just kind of adapted for us over time so like maybe we were like in denial like that when the, the term metal first started getting thrown around in conjunction with our name, I was like, what metal? No way. But the fact that, you know, bands like Baroness and Isis exist and that we've gotten into those bands and stuff over the years, uh, I definitely see it a lot now, but I just kind of thought we were in the beginning. I mean, we would have just labeled ourselves as like, you know, some, a melodic indie band who liked to play with their guitar amps too loud, you know? Yeah, yeah. Triple Crown is a very diverse roster, and that's kind of yeah. like their thing. I mean, especially when you guys put out Garden Window, where it's like I first listened to that, and I was just like, dude, like this totally makes sense 
to be a part of that world. And like, because it's on, you know, because a person may have preconceived notions about what triple crown puts out, they they might not even obviously give you guys the time of day based on that. And this is, this is mostly from a music critic standpoint, because obviously kids don't give a shit about what label, (laughs) whatever comes out on. I was wondering if you guys ran across that where it's like, you did see, you know, certain fans bleed over from that, you know, genre because they were like, Oh yeah. Like I like those bands. So a brother falls into that. Yeah, I, I think I would like to like sort of um, tether that sort of um, alliance there. I, I mean, I would like to be associated with those bands now. Uh, sure. It's just something we didn't think of early on. Like uh, our first EP we put out through Favorite Gentlemen, which is a record label owned right. by our friends in Manchester Orchestra. And right. like a lot of the opportunities we got were like through that. Like our first tour with Thrice was on Thrice and Manchester's co-headlining tour. And then right. that's through them, you know, that's how everything, all the other tours we got. Yeah, yeah, that's how everything else happened for you guys was because of that byproduct. It's really cool when a band can trace that back. This was either the definitive tour, the definitive release, the definitive song where it's like, from that point on, like a, a corner was turned, you know. Yeah. Like it's cool that you can you can point to that specific moment and be like, oh yeah, stuff changed after that happened. Right. It, I mean, it definitely comes down to you know uh, Manchester liking us and befriending us. A lot of the things, opportunities we got came from that, which is so weird because I mean it's a completely different band and why they liked us in the beginning, I have no idea. But I'm glad that they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, if I would have seen us back then, I would have thought we were terrible, and that's it. <laughs> and so uh, to, kind of, to kind of wrap things up, um, you know, where I, I wanted to kind of go back to the, the whole, you know, managing expectations and stuff like that. And the, um, you know, the idea that, you know, who you surround yourself with as far as like, you know, business partners and labels and all that type of stuff. It's like, or I see the bands that are able to last longer are the ones that surround themselves with people who are aren't afraid to like, you know, either call them out in their bullshit or be able to like say no to things. Cause obviously if you surround yourself with sort of, for lack of a better term, yes, men or like a booking agent, that's just going to try to make money off of you for the next <laughs> year and a half. And like, you know, like send you out your first headline, yeah. send you out your first headlining tour and like, you know, completely burn all the promoters cause a hundred kids are showing up and they've guaranteed you 2000 bucks a night. Um, and so, but it's, to me, it seems like you guys have surrounded yourself with people who are not afraid to tell you when you guys are doing stupid shit. Like, am I right? Or oh, am definitely, I... definitely. Our, That's good. our booking agent will call us out on anything. And <laughs> we call each other out on everything too. So that's, that's definitely good. And you know, Ken is one of the most uh, honest people I know. So about everything. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Did you have to develop like thick skin because of that pretty quickly? <laughs> it, it wasn't quick though. I should have developed it very quickly, <laughs> but no, I definitely like early on. I mean, I've had my feelings here before, but yeah, you know, now it's just kind of, now I, it's more of a picking the battles kind of thing. I mean, if it's something that like, I'm not really don't care about, I'll, I'll let someone else just kind of head that up. You know, That's, I like that. I like that. You're like, I there's there's a pretty strong chance that I'm going to be bummed if I handle this, so I'm going to go ahead and remove yeah. myself from this. Right. If, I mean, <laughs> if I if there's like one tour poster that I think is stupid, but you know, I'm not just gonna I'm not gonna argue for an hour about it because I mean I don't really care that much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're like, what's where, where's my energy best spent? Right. Yeah. But no, I love everyone that we work with. They're all 
really good dudes. That's good. That's good. Yeah. You, like I said, you got to, some bands end up surrounding themselves with people who, you know, are just looking at their, whatever band they're representing as like a, a profit center for a certain period of time. And, you know, that can work. Yeah. Obviously that works for cert, certain managers and agents, but then those bands, you know, quote unquote careers are like three years and it's done. Yeah. Everyone that we work with, uh, uh, interestingly enough, is from Long Island, and they're all like older Long Island dudes. So they're just like harder and you know straight up with you about everything. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely definitely the East Coast vibe. I'm like, yeah. yo, your shit sucks. Yeah, for sure. Every day, every day I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tanner, for hanging out, you know, walking me through where everything's at. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, there you go. That is our discussion with Tanner Merritt from Oh Brother. Go check out their new record. It came out this week. This is what you call marketing and like synchronicity and all that other good stuff. In all actuality, I just wanted to interview him. And it just happened to time up that their new record came out. So go check that out. Uh, for more information on the show, visit 100wordpodcast.com. The editor for this show is tom richfield and also don't forget to visit propertyofzack.com there you go and until next week i will talk to you then be safe everybody Bye.